you are hip-hop we are hip-hop and this is the i am hip-hop podcast as you can see we are in a completely different space right now for you youtube listeners and we're in for a treat today we've got not one but two very very special guests for our Women's Month podcast special. Can we give it up for Janine Francois? Woo! <laughs> I'm missing my like sound effects. <laughs> and <laughs> we need some bashment horns, right? <laughs> and Sophia Takur. <laughs> we gotta give you a, we gotta do a click <laughs> for the poet right here. So we've got Janine. If you'd like to say a little bit about what you do in like a little snappy sentence. Yeah, so my main bread and butter or how I pay my bills every month. I'm an academic, so I teach at um, University of Art, but I'm also a culture producer, so I put on events, um, curate exhibitions, and I also do a lot of work with institutions around like um, Structural racism. Okay. And Sophia. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a pale in comparison. Um, I'm a writer, so performance poet, author, uh, songwriter, copyright, just all things sort of word based, word related. We love we love to see it. We love I feel like everyone at the moment is kind of like multidisciplinary. Yeah. Like no one wants to be boxed into like kind of one category. It's a great like time. have you like what was your kind of journey into thinking you're going to branch out into different art forms or different kind of hustles, if that makes sense? I got bills to pay. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, for real, I actually have bills to pay. Because so <laughs> money's real. Um, what, like, that is literally genuinely a thing, but also I just feel like um, I had very different backgrounds before even working in universities. I worked as a youth worker for 10 years, working with young women yeah. affected by sexual violence. So I'm always basically doing teaching. To me, it isn't any different to being a youth worker. It's about care, care frameworks, mm. um, putting on an exhibition with artists. Often marginalized artists, it's the same work. It's about a care framework. So I think for me, the running thread is about how do you care for people in different environments and how do you kind of create a space of community? And that is kind of what I think is a common theme between these random things that I do. And would you say for you, Sophia, it's the same? I feel like community is also quite a strong, like reoccurring motif in a lot of your poetry. Yeah, for sure. I just that's really beautiful. That care sort of the thread that weaves everything you do together. That's incredible. Um, yeah, I think words more than care. I care about words, <laughs> and I care about people. But um, I think it was learning that poetry exists inside so many different spaces. We just don't really identify it as poetry initially. Um, so I think when we're young, we're exposed to poetry in in one way, which might be stanzas or anthologies or proverbs. Um, but it's in copywriting, it's in marketing, it's songwriting, it's working with brands and just how they word something on like a flyer or on one of their products. Um, so I think, again, it's, I think when you love something enough, you're going to try and find a way to monetize as much of it as possible. So I definitely learned poetry is something that is separate from an anthology and saw it as the ability to sort of pull a message out of something with words in a powerful way. And that forced me into loads of different spaces from really corporate spaces to really, really commercial spaces. So working with like the Nikes or the MTVs, but then also working with like the cancer research and then also 
obviously writing a book, but then my main thing is still performance poetry. Um, but I think recently I've dabbled a lot more in music and songwriting because um, I think it just challenges you as a writer as well. I think it just makes you a more careful, careful <laughs> uh, writer because you have less space to deliver the same potency. Um, and with music, it's just a little bit more fun as well. <laughs> and you brought up like a really amazing point as well. Um, you were saying about how the people kind of don't recognize that poetry exists everywhere. And I feel that that's a really reoccurring theme in hip hop as well, that people mm. don't recognize that a rapper is a poet. Yeah. Um, have you found as a spoken word artist um, that you, could you cross over into rap? Have you found that rappers can cross over into spoken word? Um, Definitely both. Um, I do, I don't call it rap, but oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's rap. When I'm working with musicians, I played Jazz Cafe the other day and half of my set was what we call lyrical poetry in the poetry world, which is basically rap. Um, and yeah, it's very hard not to, especially when it's the main thing that you consume. I remember when I was in a really R&B space a few years ago, my poems, like most of them were like love or about family, but they, they had a... Um, a, a similar sentiment that you would find in R&B. And then I remember in, when I was in third year, I think um, Stormzy's album came out, Gang Signs and Prayer. And mm -hmm. I hadn't listened to UK rap in ages. I grew up on like really old school American hip hop, mm -hmm. like the Big L's and the Big Puns and the, the Psy Highs. Um, and I hadn't, yes, I hadn't listened to UK rap in ages and I listened to it and then everything I wrote sort of that year past that point was just really, really ly lyrical, like really, really rap-like. Um, I remember once I got given a book that Tupac wrote, A Rose from Con... Mm. Uh, oh. A Rose from... The Rose from the Yeah, the Con... Yeah. yeah. Rose from Con... with that. Um, and it was sort of like, it was like a stream of consciousness almost. It was his thoughts, some in um, poem form, some in rap form, some just thoughts quite freehand. And one thing I found, especially when I write for rappers, they love the freedom of poetry because you're not sort of constrained to like a beat or a bar you can just say everything you've wanted to say or want to say um, but then poets a lot of poets I know really enjoy the constraints of a song or, um, like a bridge in a bar otherwise you can just you can go on for ages but I suppose it's the art thing you sort of love what your main practice is what yeah. your main practice isn't a lot of the time as well but yeah I mean poetry and rap are the, this exact same, same thing, thing yeah. yeah and for you Janine as well like as an academic and because you're like a kind of academic <laughs> and because obviously you're a cultural studies academic as well and you um you're gonna launch your hip-hop studies yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah. yeah um so with that as well mm. thinking about hip-hop being kind of like a valid field mm. of academia mm. what's been the challenges in that and like yeah um the in it's interesting with um starting the hip-hop cultures as a module so technically there was no challenge like got through like fine I was ready for a fight like I was ready <laughs> to like beat down people <laughs> but like yeah like, this is a great idea I'm like yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> what's really hard is actually how do you condense, condense mm. but also teach something that's also experiential like how mm. do you teach something when you're listening to something or you're reading something or experiencing as like there's a theory behind that and it's you know so something about like with hip-hop it's it's it is teachable but it's also so experiential and it's so how you vibe with other people it's about the spontaneity of the moment it's all these things that i think we're still trying to figure it out and i 
think with a lot of like black expression uh, in terms of how black people commune and create a lot of it is intangible like mm-hmm. it just is mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um so trying to like create reading and lectures is actually quite it's enjoyable and challenging but it's really difficult to do yeah. something that you just you exist within yeah yeah and it's just a different it, it just sits outside of like western frameworks of how learning should be yeah know? so yeah i actually did my dissertation in uni so i studied international relations and mm. politics and i did my dissertation on music as political activism mm. and it was focusing on three main albums one was beyonce's lemonade because it just came out one was um it's been butterfly and the other was like an old um, sort of UK punk, British one. Um, and I had a similar, not a similar situation because I'm like by no means an academic, but um, I went to quite a, po- not posh university, but no one else had ever written about hip hop mm. in the politics module, put it that way. And I thought I was going to have a really hard time, but um, Pete Burnham, my dissertation, what do you call him, supervisor, he just loved the idea, like really, really loved the idea. And I think that goes to show that it is, it's undeniable once mm. all the facts are there and it's such a big culture it can't not have lessons inside mm. it do you know what i mean it can't not have theories inside it mm. i feel like mm. I'm, I'm also doing dissertation like yeah uh, i'm in the middle of writing my one well, i should be like finished right now so my one it's examining about um so it's about like in brazil so there's this musical funky music which yeah. is like you know boom, cha, cha, boom, cha, okay, cha. Yeah. yeah like yeah. everyone knows it as that so it's kind of like a dance but also like um it's basically their rap music mm, and it was yeah. created by black working class mm. people um living in these communities called favelas mm. and um so yeah it's just exploring whether um Baile funky um can be considered like a liberatory space for black feminist thought and okay. yeah so okay. like with that as well like with my <laughs> dissertation supervisor like she's completely i love her but she's completely unqualified she told me yeah. um why don't you write your dissertation on like 19th century brazilian literature and i'm like she's this not has the same quite the same yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm like 200 years ago like, yeah, you know, like, but yeah like it's quite interesting like with that as well like also examining kind of black feminist thought in in hip hop and there's always this argument in hip hop that if you are a woman and particularly if you're a black woman because there have been numerous rappers who do say very misogynistic things um misogynoir particularly as well um can as black women can we enjoy hip hop like what what's your totally. thought on thoughts on that yeah with that, I, I'm a black woman and I love hip hop I grew up on hip hop um, I, in fact, I remember the first hip-hop song I heard was Onyx Slam in 93. And, yeah, because we went yeah. to New York for the summer for the first time. Oh, my god! My brother's, like, 10 years older than me. Mm. And, like, he was just like, whoa, like, what is this? Mm. And we came back and it was, like, literally the song on repeat. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 September. So, like, that is... And I was about six years old so that would have been like the first hip-hop song i heard and i yeah that was the music that i grew up listening to due to my siblings and my mom as well so i think that hip-hop 
I mean, what the whole misogyny thing is that we always leave out that misogyny is white supremacist, and like with any culture we exist, it's a it's a subsection, it's a byproduct of white supremacy. So yes, there is misogyny in hip hop, but there's also misogyny in freaking rap rock songs. Mm-hmm. You know, like you hear some really heavy heavy metal. They're talking yeah, about raping women mm-hmm. and seven women yeah. who are pregnant. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not having that conversation. Mm-hmm. So any culture within the dominant culture is always going to absorb those mm-hmm. value systems and hip hop is no different to any other genre of music mm-hmm. but I think because it's black people the attention is much more focused because mm-hmm. it plays into narratives that we are somehow more degenerate and we're you know mm-hmm. more debased and you know these really kind of racist colonial stereotypes so I think it's that's why what needs to be unpicked is hip hop mm-hmm. isn't any more sexist than any other music genre mm-hmm. male rappers aren't any more sexist than like male rock singers or pop singers you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. and for you Sophia like what was your first kind of um, connection with hip hop like when you was um, young like your first experience with hip hop culture or anything I remember um, oh my first experience with hip hop culture is very different from my first experience with hip hop I think I grew up playing ball and mm-hmm. basketball as a wider culture when you're off court is very especially when you're young um, and you're in an area like mine it, it looks like hip hop culture a lot so I think I learned a lot more about it before I could attach it to a genre or a sound. Um, but I remember hearing what was oh, that? Runaway Love. Mm-mm-mm-mm. That was one of it wasn't one of the first hip hop songs I heard, but it was the first time I had heard storytelling. Um, I think was it Ludacris? I can't remember. The Lil Lisa's Only Nine Years. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was like yeah. four different stories mm-hmm. in this like one maybe six minute song with a chorus and. I, as a as a poet before I was a poet, I loved that. I was like, wait, hang on. And there, that was there was there was a time for that. Like there was a, in hip hop. I remember when I was that age and I was listening. These were the kind of things that were coming from the TV. A lot of the rap around me sounded like that. Um, whether it was Sci High the Prince telling like a, just a six minute story on a track. Um, I grew up inside that side of hip hop more so than um, perhaps like club hip hop or dance hip hop or hip hop that is re- more explicitly um, unbalanced in terms of how and what they speak about things. Um, but sort of going back to what you said, I was in New York a couple of days ago and I linked up with one of my friends there and she's in, she lives in the Bronx and her family's lived in the Bronx forever um not for i mean for eight for a very long time they've been in the bronx and they're and she works inside hip-hop she's a publicist um and the hip-hop that their their lifestyle was very much hip-hop there this was completely new to me but their reasoning and how they rationalize things in their day-to-day so even when we're making decisions about the day it's I wouldn't, maybe not hip hop per se, but it's the loudest part of their culture. When you're in the Bronx, it's the clothes, the food, the mannerisms, the rationale, um, of course, the music, um, how people reason with each other, how people communicate with each other. It all derives from this culture that's obviously so much more than a sound. And there was this female artist that she was showing me and cause she was having a birthday whilst I was there. And it was, she's like, I mean, their main rapper's obviously Lil' Kim in terms of their in the Bronx female rappers and a lot of female rappers have sort of derived from her in terms of style, dress, content. Um, And it's become, because she's been there for so long and she was obviously only like one person in a bigger culture, but it, 
it was so normal, like so, so, so normal. When I'm in London, I'm in obviously in a different space. I'm around, I'm at empowerment events all the time. And if you like, you see my content, most of my content is to do with women, is to do with either self-empowerment or female empowerment about closing the gaps um, in sort of internally in our own homes and our own conversations. So when I was there, it was, it was such a shock to me, such, and it shouldn't have been because I know it to exist. I know it to exist. It's just not something that's in my context at all, but it was just so normalized, like the, the way people were dressing, um, which isn't necessarily inherently wrong unless you know your why. Um, but I think there was a massive lack of knowing why she's singing like this or why the video looks like this, why she's bending like that. There was just a lack of the why. And I think if you've grown up and only seen a culture and you've only been ingrained in one culture and everyone around you is in that same culture, you don't naturally question the why. That's not your first thing to do until you're sort of pulled out from it or you see something a little bit different and then you're like, oh, actually. Um, but they were their roots were so... They'd been there, you know, they'd been there and she was born into the Lil' Kims and she's then managed a whole bunch of artists since that are very much like her and her family's in the same industry and it's just... It was normal, like, it was very normal. Um, and I don't know how... Let's say you've been in our land. <laughs> Let's say you've been in sort of a, a, a big family for ages and you've got one thing that you do in your culture. So, for example, breaking plates at a celebration. Let's say that's something you've always seen to be normal and exist. Um, you, you, you might just never question it at all. And then my question when I was there in New York the whole time was like, how obligated am I to try to tell you something's wrong or right when this is your smashing plates? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm unless you question your why personally and I suppose we can just point someone in the direction of working out their why mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. can I ask can you tell me more like what was shocking like what was it that was just kind of I was, so the video so the video was a freestyle um, it was the box freestyle which was a bunch of female rappers from New York um, some like quite well known here I think one or two that are quite well known here but then the rest I'd never heard of um, but in the video it was like a big white room and the, the different women like no one was really was really was really wearing like any clothes um and the video was so for example the rapper that she was managing had like a leather tarzan type suit on and she had two women on a leash by the neck in front of her mm. and she had like one of her foot had her foot on like one of their bums and it was just feeding i don't really know what it was feeding but the whole video was sort of along that same vein um there was a lot of like animalistic references in the lyrics and all the lyrics were just talking about sex um what they can do what they expect their partners to do which again like isn't inherently wrong but it is to me it was just really shocking like really shocking because i hadn't seen it i hadn't i hadn't i hadn't seen it in ages it felt it just felt like so long since i'd actually been around um female rappers maybe because even yeah even here not as much and i think there's like quite a fine line particularly with um with black women rappers or any black women in the music industry between what's hypersexualization and what's just them owning their yeah. sexuality yeah. Yeah. and it's always such a difficult question and it's kind of like you know you have your people like meg the stallion who i i absolutely love her um but it's just like you know some people would also be critical of her and what she represents and you know she gets criticism for only talking about literally her vagina and how good she is at sex you know what i mean and people say she's being one-dimensional but 
but then at the same time you have male rappers who literally only talk about sex and i i just wanted to ask you guys do you think there's just there's this big double standard for the like women in the music industry definitely i do feel like men are really interesting people right interesting interesting <laughs> and so on one hand right they want women to like respond to like sex and sexuality but only within their confines right within like what they want and so sometimes when women step out maybe it's like Meg Thee Stallion or it's Foxy or it's Cardi or it's Nikki or whoever and they exist in their own kind of context that's when it's like they're doing too much, much yeah it's too hypersexual they're not respecting themselves but hold on a minute you're reproducing exactly the same kind of like visuals or language in your own music videos yeah. or in your own songs and that's what I think is the double standard it's like well you're okay with it when it's for you mm. but when it's a woman doing it for herself even if she's still using the same sexist language it's not okay mm -hmm. so it's about power it's about like deciding women's sexuality and how women can be sexually active and how they express themselves but only if it's for male pleasure yeah Never for our pleasure like we don't have pleasure yeah and that's what I get really like like even if sometimes I do disagree with it I still think that women should have the space to be able to to be overt with their sexuality and I think mm -hmm. especially black women like historically there's been hypersexualization placed on our bodies and there's been other narratives of like our libidos being you know uncontrollable so when we like use reproduce that same language it's a problem yeah and I just don't think the same kind of language or the same kind of critique exists with like specifically black men and like phallic power and like how big their penis is yeah. and all that kind of stuff because that's still a racist trope that's a slavery trope you know mm -hmm. so it, yeah there's there's a very double-edged sword there i also think as well like it's also there is um kind of the double standard again who gets to who's mm. um who's deemed as being hypersexual so mm. you have someone who like meg the stallion you know she let's just say she's kind of like the i she's got an ideal feminine body mm. you know like she's slim but she's curvy mm. you know what i mean fat in all the right places mm. to be really like yeah. vulgar about it and then you have someone like missy elliott who raps about a lot of these kind of things mm. like literally what do people think one minute man was yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know but missy elliott is never ever put in the same category mm. as as meg the stallion or cardi b or someone mm. um i don't know what's your what's your guys thoughts on it and particularly for you sophia as well like i, I think as well like um for female rappers who kind of I would give the example of maybe someone like No Name, mm -hmm. um, who I absolutely love. Mm -hmm. And um, I know she comes from originally a spoken word background yeah. as well and kind of made the crossover. But I've kind of noticed that a lot of these kind of female rappers, like take a Lauren Hill, for yeah. instance, or like a No yeah, Name, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. those ones who kind of um, adhere to kind of respectability mm -hmm. politics in a sense, um, they're, they're poets. Mm -hmm. they're, like, they're not rappers. Do you think there's like a classism element as well like in the world of poetry like poetry and rap i mean yeah with 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 any genre even when you look at the inception of jazz when people started doing free jazz people were like what is that like what is this disorganized thing and i think you get purists in, in anything but i think what you said earlier between um, the thin line between someone being sexually liberated and then someone feeding a hypersexual sexualized culture it's it, it's a thin, it's not actually a thin line to be fair it's just a blurry one yeah. um, 
and sometimes the artist themselves isn't aware and I remember having when I was in New York and I was with my partner and we were having this conversation and he's a black man and we were talking about the hypersexualization of the black man compared to the hypersexualization of the black woman and I was basically saying I wanted to start a lingerie line for married women and that was my aim and in terms of the marketing side of things it would be my example to him was there's a source and then there's output and then there's input Mm -hmm. input is the 16 year old boys or girls that I work with output is what they're exposed to in the media and the source is what the media creates and they all exist in this cycle and it's very the, the brain of the output is very influenced by the source massively which is why if you want to change the mindset you have to change the source which is what we're seeing in marketing now mm-hmm. um, and linking that into sort of the sexualization it's showing different types of bodies for example or showing different colors in different spaces but just reshaping the prejudice and the ideas that you might have and I think um, inside that when linking it back to sort of the sexualization explicitly where we've even said um, the main sexualized body of a black woman is like big hips thin waist, big breast, um, long legs, whatever it might be, um, comparing that to how white women used to be sexualized um, and how that fed this culture of anorexia, for example, in modeling it and with mm-hmm. young girls. And I think it's sometimes the artist doesn't know because they're so con- they're so far inside the source or they're so far gone inside the output, they're not sure whether they're liberating themselves or they're, whether they're sexually liberating themselves or whether they're feeding into a culture that is sexually I was in India a few weeks ago and there was a panel discussion on no by women who write about sex and literature and one of the women said that the first month of her have the first month of her being married which was the first time she was having sex she felt so much shame attached to bending in certain ways moving in certain ways making sounds because she had grown up in a Hindu culture where sex is a massive part of Hinduism like a huge part of Hinduism yeah but it's never spoken about with the girls growing yeah. up in Hinduism at all. Wow, okay. And the Kama Sutra, like, yeah, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, I was, like, I was just, just checking massive, that. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's a massive part of the religion, um, but it's not something that the, the girls are encouraged to speak about, to explore anything of the sort. Um, whereas the men, it's a conversation, even my, um, my Hindu family, like the men, it's a conversation that you have at like maybe 13, 14, and you carry on having that conversation. And especially at 14, 16, when you're thinking of sex or sexualizing a woman's body, you might go to the karma search but you're probably going to go to porn or you're going to watch music videos and that's what you see as a woman's sexual body so when you then go into marriage you've got this warped idea of what sex is you've got this warped idea of what the woman's body is meant to do for you and how it's meant to pleasure you and as a woman who's never been educated on sex prior to that because of the culture then you get married at like 17, 18, 19 and you then have to perform for your husband the only thing you've seen pertaining to sex is also the same media is also the same porn so she goes in with this mindset of I need to perform for my husband he goes in with this mindset of my wife's body is she's meant to perform for me and they live like that and they Mm -hmm. stay like that so she was saying that her first sort of month or few months of marriage she was so ashamed of her body because she was she was never encouraged to explore her sexuality she was never encouraged to see her body 
is a sexual body or a sexual being at all and that was brand new to her and that obviously shaped sex and her marriage massively mm-hmm. and I say that to say how do we because this is something I still don't know um, how do we encourage that sexual exploration of a body for girls in a society that breeds such a warped um, picture of a woman's body yeah. or a warped picture of women in the role of sex I, I, I still don't know how mm-hmm. at all like, even when I go into schools mm-hmm. and I'm working with the younger girls which I'd like do weekly I'm still not completely sure because you have to teach it with confidence you have to teach it with liberation you have to Mm. teach it with responsibility Mm -hmm. but you can't stop what they see they're exposed to the exact same people we see now they're expert the 13 year olds have got the same people on their Instagram feed that I do now Mm -hmm. but they haven't got a level of sensitivity or responsibility or even confidence at that stage to separate that from themselves yeah and like Janine you said Mm. you worked um, you did youth work for Mm. 10 years and like did you um, come across these themes with the young women that you worked with obviously maybe they're too young for marriage but even just in kind of relationships with their boyfriends and feeling like they have to perform in a certain way and adhere to certain kind of um i don't know sexual images that he may have seen their boyfriend may have seen on the internet and how did you deal with that how to answer kind of sophia's question i mean because i had my own girls group wasn't in school so it's a whole different context where you get to build relationships with young people over durational periods of time and yeah totally those things came up but I think it's important what I've always what I know one being a young woman myself like we must always remember we were young women Mm. and so we experience perhaps not so different things that young women nowadays experience is that I still think that young people young women have the capacity to differentiate so like they're seeing all these images yes it's quite toxic actually and it does feed a particular kind of um, framing of how women should be at the same time I still think young women especially young women of colour are able to like exist outside of that like it's kind of doing but what's called it the oppositional gaze so you can see things you know you're not being represented but you kind of able to exist outside of it at the mm. same time mm. so you're doing these two things at once and so like I, would, I remember like one of the girls asked me what Viagra was and so I was just like a man takes it for a type of penis and, sorry to um, keep his penis erect and just like, like just like that matter of fact not like <laughs> giggling and just like okay cool and so I think like also it's how you deliver information like mm-hmm. if we like you're saying deliver it to confidence deliver it factually deliver it in a context that's also safe um, I think young people are much more respectful and much more um, responsible than we probably really give them and take it credit for mm-hmm. and like I know that some of the young women I were working was definitely having sex under the age the legal age of consent and I can't stop them from doing that but what I can do is tell you where to go and what resources you should be using and whether you are actually having consensual sex Mm. and what does consent actually really mean um, boundaries and all these other things that sits around engagement but also as a culture we don't know what intimacy means Mm. like we associate intimacy with sex we don't associate intimacy with friendships Mm. we don't associate like our fixation is a very like heterosexual romantic coupling framework we don't think about other ways to be loving other ways to touch other ways to be intimate Mm -hmm. other ways to express our desires that isn't necessarily always Mm sexualised so we have a wider culture that doesn't actually educate us or we're not seeing visuals that shows different types of desiring framework Um, and then when we do it's a very heterosexual coupled framework so Mm -hmm. but also dealing with that and then 
underneath that you have the whole pornographic highly sexualized visuals and so it's all a big mess and I think yeah. for me the most important thing is like how do I build intimacy with you two sitting right next to me mm. what does mm. that look and feel like yeah. is it okay to touch you kind of you know like how do we build these language like every single day mm-hmm. so when we do have romantic context it's just like part of our norm and I think for me like when I was working with young women like that was the biggest thing like building intimate caring language every day so yeah. that even if it's just our space that's the space that exists in whether it doesn't translate anywhere else whatever but you need that yeah, yeah you need that definitely because yeah. you're up against a monster mm-hmm. like, you're up against such a monster especially kids now like sometimes I'm just at a loss when I go into schools because mm-hmm. I'm just you're, you're seeing me for X amount of hours a week mm-hmm. but you spend way longer than that on your phone mm-hmm. you spend way longer than that and I think what I found recently and this is something I even speak about in my book a little bit because it happened to me but now they're up against a bigger monster I remember when I was in school, there was a guy I had a crush on, and I was such a tom, um, that tomboy was just the thing, um, and so we were really close friends. But the girls that I saw that he, he fancied, they looked a certain way. They had started going through puberty already, and I hadn't. So when I came back the following summer, and I felt like my almonds were like mangoes, and I had some hips, I was like, I can't wait for PE, like I can't wait, to get into, I can't wait to get in some shorts. And it didn't bang for me anyway. But that that was that was that was such an example of um, how how we see ourselves mm-hmm. in comparison to things and now as a 14 15 year old a very natural feeling like a crush or liking someone you might look to the kind of music they consume or the videos they consume see the woman that they're attracted to and that is your immediate sense of comparison mm-hmm. you're comparing yourself to like let's say they do watch Meg the Stallion or Maya Jama whoever it might mm-hmm. be that's your immediate point of comparison mm-hmm. and definitely I'm not giving like young girls enough credit because their discernment at this age is I think I personally think a lot better than a lot of my friends discernments when we were young just because they're they're encouraged to critically think because they see a zillion opinions a day Mm. Um, but then also not all young people are exposed to that either because it still can be very unhealthy like Instagram is a worm is a wormhole you control your content but it it kind of feeds you essentially Mm -hmm. whatever you eat especially if you're not trained social media in terms of what's what's safe your actual mental and what's not what's safe your confidence what's not um so i think we have these spaces where we work Mm -hmm. with these young girls and we can be um a a point of care or a point of at least conversation or at least empathy or compassion or understanding but that's still the minority of girls and but the the majority of young girls are exposed to this monster which is the media Mm. and it's yeah i don't know i don't know i just feel for feel for the new gen yeah and i think like you both touched on points as well like again creating those um intimate bonds with fellow women femmes and the importance of that because obviously we've got all these like you know not only just patriarchy and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and just other factors such as instagram and those kind of images that you're endlessly like particularly as a young person and Mm -hmm. you may be susceptible to being influenced by this and so i just wanted to ask you guys what are some like femmes or any kind of spaces that you found that have been like really amazing to your creative growth and that you've been able to find kind of intimacy or love and care if that makes sense 
Um, these are two online spaces, actually. So one's called Rihanna Jade Park, Bomb Babylon. Oh, I this love that. Like, <laughs> it's a great space. Um, and then the other one is by Bola Tajuddin, which is Art in the Age of Black Girl Magic. What's that group? Yeah. <laughs> it's about over like 100 black women creative of all kinds. And it's amazing. And we're just like constantly dialoguing every day. Um, and my friend Dre, um, she does amazing healing spaces and um, events. And so I feel like the black women perhaps in, it goes back to your point about like what's in your context what's who are you orbiting around so the black women that I'm lucky to be orbiting around are like organising exponentially like mm-hmm. I think in the last like I don't know five years we're seeing like you know Galdem got Born and Bread you got Babes you got all these um, Rain Collective like all these different mainly also queer collectives as well like yeah. that needs to be very like articulated um, organising exponentially and I'm like what are the London doing <laughs> what are the black boys doing like, like I'm actually kind of concerned uh-huh. <laughs> I'm genuinely seriously concerned I'm like I'm seeing black women like and um, black femmes and black queer folks organise and create spaces and be in community and I'm like but what are our brothers doing mm. like who are they going to like how is this operating yeah because yeah. I'm like yeah. low-key high-key concerned like yeah. how yeah. are they being in dialogue with yeah, each other? yeah and I just don't feel like the framework of like liberation around patriarchy around heterosexuality isn't going to change if black men aren't in dialogue Dogs, with yeah. each other yeah yeah, yeah. Um, where are yeah. they getting their cues from like who are they reading mm-hmm. like you know yeah so I, I am like okay it's great that we're doing this stuff but like what's happening yeah, on the other side as well yeah yeah you're so right when I think of the sort of black female movements mm-hmm. that I've seen take off over the mm-hmm. past two years like whether it's like black girl first or yeah, yeah yeah um, I can't think of an actual male yeah um, equivalent at all um, my my situation with my context has become a lot more complicated since I started working in music a lot I think when I was just poetry poetry is quite a nurturing art form mm-hmm. um, and it creates quite nurturing spaces and I was in like the, the inception of like Gaudem and, and BBN like these that was these were sort of the spaces I was operating in, performing in, writing press for, like these kind of spaces. And then as I got into music, it becomes more visual than internal, firstly. And a lot of the group, let's say group chats that I'm in for music, they... I don't have to explain it other than saying they're very visual based so if they are uplifting you they're uplifting you about a photo you just posted mm. it won't necessarily oh, okay. be the content of what you might have said in the caption or whatever it uh, might be okay. so it's more like it's more like that mm. um, but also it's, it's a very R&B and hip hop space that I'm in um, a friend of mine Kenny Amaphidon um, he just does a lot for the community and bringing people together and three years ago he wanted um, a group around him of people from different industries different walks of life to have a space for dialogue and responsible dialogue and sharpening each other and a Christian group as well was what he wanted but he didn't have one so he made one um, so he got 18 girls in parliament and he got 18 guys and we, we meet separately and for three years we've been meeting separately um, every few months and now we have our socials and he's been re- creating the same roster for three years now so now he's got three groups of the three different mm-hmm. 18, women and 18 men and he's created this that g- gave me a sisterhood that 
I never really, I know, I knew I needed, but I didn't know in what form. And it's women from different industries. So a lot of women in PR, a lot of women in uh, production, theatre, music. Uh, obviously, it's a parliament group, so a lot of people in in politics. Um, but it's just created this iron sharpen, ironing sharpening iron mm. thing. And there's there's few things more uplifting than a sisterhood and a nourishing sisterhood. There's few things that can build the context of a woman more than another woman mm. um, sort of speaking into you or when, when a man's doing it properly, like when a woman's speaking into a man properly and a man's speaking into a woman properly and they come together, that's an incredible thing as well. Um, but yeah, no, what you said about there not being men's spaces, that is quite concerning because in a in a dualist world, we need them to be mm. okay as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we yeah. need them to be cool, yeah. otherwise what are we doing? Yeah, uh, 100%. And as well, like, again, like we've spoken about the basically the internet without the internet we wouldn't have had these spaces because you know i mean i grew up in london you guys grew up in london as well so we're quite fortunate that we're in a space where we're surrounded by black people on a daily we go to school with them go to work with them just literally just even just passing by another mm. familiar face um and for those people who live in you know the more remote parts of the country or smaller cities and don't have that kind of community you know the internet is vital it's that key and i also think as well that people sometimes like to look down at like you know always say like the internet is just this horrible place and it's so toxic and stuff and it's just like yo like without the internet stuff like black lives matter wouldn't be able to happen me too like all of these kind of move these social movements and so for you how was the internet so instrumental in your kind of like your career taking off um i'm i'm 33 so i'm pre that generation where the internet really worked for them mm. so it didn't actually uh. take <laughs> Um, but being able to witness those who are younger than me, that is brilliant. Um, so I'm going to have to be very honest. Like, I was doing events when there was no Instagram That's... and we went really on Twitter and we weren't really posting it on Facebook. Like, yeah. it was just happening and people, like, spoke to each other. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, but real. Like, that's how I was when I used to do like female hip hop nights. That's how it was rolling. Like, it'll be like five people, and then the next one it'll be like ten people, and it'll just naturally grow. And I was doing that for like three years or so. And other people in the scene, shout out DJ Snar, who kind of like was like, okay, I see what you're doing. Yeah, you're right. We need to change. Like, you know. Mm. So um, yeah, I, I'm a, like free all of how it's organizing i'm that mm. i wasn't part of that generation so i can't speak for myself but i feel like being able to see like um younger women black women young women of color being able to organize in that way i think it's bloody brilliant because it's on an international level like you're seeing collaborations happen you're seeing people physically you know you're saying you was in brooklyn the other day connecting with someone like it's amazing to see those global networks and it's something that i didn't necessarily had like maybe on a national level but yeah yeah and like for you Sophia like obviously you're a poet and then now you've got your book coming like is it coming out or came it, out? it came out it came oh out oh my god I'm so, yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's cool that's cool thank you <laughs> <laughs> number one let's just plug your book yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Please> <laughs> plug your book. <laughs> get it from is it an online order it's, is it yeah. an online? it's all of the above so it
on like Warstones, Amazon, Foils, um, it's offline as well. I'll be really quick. But yeah, Somebody Give This Heart a Pen is a poetry collection on the universal tendencies of the heart, uh, mostly looking at family uh, and love and loss, I think, are the main themes. Um, to answer your question really quickly as well about the internet, so I'm 24, so I came out as of recently. So I was sort of working in this space of the internet massively, not necessarily for the first, like maybe 16 to 18, those mm. years as much, because it was still, it wasn't really something we were using for events massively. But after that, I think it forced me to decide what kind of um, artist I want to be in terms of responsibility, because the wake of the internet and instant gratification and low attention spans, we think less. Like we just think less about what we post, how we communicate, if we're communicating, um, we, do we miss sentiment? Do we not miss sentiment? Are we missing touch, for example? We don't even realize that we haven't hugged someone in however long. Um, so I think that made me realize, okay, I want to talk about things that will slow people down. I want to talk about the importance of slowing down. But yeah, the internet was good for that. Okay. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there, guys. Um, it's been wonderful having you both on. Um, you're also basically our first actual guest on our podcast. So this is like a momentous moment. And I'm so happy it's like two other black women because big up, we need to be everywhere on everyone's screens, in your ears, everywhere. Um, but yeah, so check out um, the I'm Hip Hop podcast, follow us and all the socials, which will be down below in the description box Janine Sophia would you like to plug your socials get them get that engagement up um, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter and it's at it's Janine BTW uh, Instagram and Twitter not much happens on Twitter though just get the book it's got, it's got everything buy there. the book guys <laughs> but um, yeah Sophia Tarko on Instagram and YouTube okay great and thank you for having us bye